Today's special midweek midterm debrief episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building, and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have the experience you need on your side when something goes wrong. They know the law inside and out and will explain every detail without legal jargon so you can feel comfortable and fully understand your situation. They know how the system works and have the expertise and resources to continue to standing up for clients on matters where others might just give up. So to go find out more about Morris Blackburn Lawyers, you need to go to their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out, well, every Friday, but we're doing a special one this week because the midterm elections were on last week and our good friend, from the United States, Democratic uh, strategist Janae Wartell and former uh, Georgia runoff state director in the runoffs in 2021 will be back on the show. If you remember, we had Janae on uh, a couple of weeks ago to do a bit of a preview and she's come back on today just to do a bit of a review of uh, the, uh, the the midterms, which were um, elections for a third of the Senate, all of the House races and a number of uh, governor races or gubernatorial races uh, across the United States on Tuesday last week. So Janelle will be on the show today to uh, unpack all of the results uh, and uh, and the, the hows and the whys of the results, but a great result for the Democrats. Um, don't forget, uh, obviously, we've got another episode coming out this Friday, which is our second instalment of our Victorian election uh, weekly recap with David Feeney and Emma Dawson. Um, and uh, we'll have another one of those next week. Um, and we're also going to be doing a live telecast for election night, uh, which is on Saturday evening, the 26th of November, when um, all the other channels are going to do their election night coverage. We're going to give you an incredibly biased left-wing election night coverage. We did it at the start of the year for the federal election campaign, uh, and we're going to do it again. So uh, join myself and uh, our comrades from the week on Wednesday, Ben Davidson and uh, uh, Van Batten, uh, and special guests to unpack uh, the results as they come in uh, across the great state of Victoria. So look out for links uh, to that live telecast in the coming days. Uh, and don't forget, if uh, you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast and on Spotify. And when you're done listening to the episode, leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Wednesday morning on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Uh, and joining me on the line is becoming our resident democratic uh, strategist slash uh, podcaster to give us an update about how things are transpiring with elections in the United States. Obviously, it was in midterms last Tuesday in the United States, Wednesday morning into Wednesday afternoon here in Australia. 
Janae Wartell, welcome back to Socially Democratic. It's great to be here. And under better circumstances, I think, than possibly what we thought we would be doing when we were going to do this post-election breakdown, right? Yes, indeed, indeed. I am certainly happier with this outcome than I would have been with the alternative. To be fair to you, though, when we did do our pre-midterm podcast, breaking down the races, to be fair, you did say, without being specific, but effectively alluding, I tried to draw you on a prediction, but you weren't prepared to do that, but you did allude to the fact that you felt good about the Senate. You thought, okay, I think uh, there's a good chance the Democrats can hold the Senate and that the House would be close. And it turns out not only are you a saint, but you're also uh, a Nostradamus because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yes, it is indeed what happened. I'm very pleased um, at the accuracy there. You know, we didn't see the red wave that some predicted. And I think that given, you know, historically what happens during the midterm election when you have, you know, a sitting president, I think some were right to be cautiously optimistic about the outcomes. Um, but I'm really uh, pleased to see that we were, you know, able to um, really, um, you know, in the House, not have the the serious losses that might have been predicted, and and hold on to the Senate. And I think, you know, going into this Georgia runoff, being in an even better place in the Senate than we were um, after last year is 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 truly phenomenal. For the those who are not familiar with the United States politics. Um, history was made with this result in, in in that it broke a trend that had been going as far back as I think, I think the Kennedy um, administration. Can you just sort of talk us through um, why history was made? Why were, why was the orthodoxy that it would be a red wave and what, and, it, and that it did have, didn't happen? Well, traditionally in the midterm elections, it is just that the middle of the term, of a presidency. And because you've had two years of whoever the sitting president is and whatever party he, he's from, um, typically that election is seen as kind of a referendum on, you know, or report card on how the, the sitting president is doing. And, you know, whether or not they've made good on campaign promises, whether, you know, folks feel like um, they've been able to really execute on their agenda. Um, you know, folks either reward or, or punish, so to speak, um, the party that's in power. And so that's why, you know, in this case with a sitting Democratic president, we predicted a red wave because, you know, we assume given the challenges that any sitting president will have when he, um, you know, is two years into his term, that we would see uh, a backlash there. Um, but that's not, in fact, what we saw. You know, President Biden had the better, a better um, midterm election than, um, than, um, a president's had in decades. And I think that that was really, you know, a result of a number of things. I think many can speculate that, you know, um, there were some some bad candidates um, on the ballot, some election deniers, um, the influence of Donald Trump and what we'd witnessed in the last two years. Um, and also that, you know, folks were felt like the country was more so headed in the right direction on some key policies. Um, perhaps there are still areas and certainly there are areas where, um, you know, we're still um, not seeing the progress that we need, um, but that we, you know, it was better going forward than going backwards. And I think that many folks embrace that belief. Well, let's unpack some of the results. And I want to start with the Senate. 
uh, in which there are 100 senators, um, only a certain amount, a third of them were up for election. The Democrats currently held 50, with the tiebreaker being the vice president. Um, and as um, we speak uh, tonight slash this morning, the Democrats hold 50 senators uh, and the Republicans hold 49. And the Democratic wins were Nevada, or the, the main ones anyway, that we sort of talked about when we're doing the uh, midterm preview was Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and the, Demo- and the GOP wins were Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin, and obviously Georgia. Your home state is going to a runoff. We'll talk about Georgia in a moment. But let's sort of just move through. I just want to get your thoughts on some of these key wins for the Democratic Party uh, in the Senate, starting with Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. <laughs> I'm not going to do this again. Um, <clears throat> an amazing result for John Fetterman. And yeah. I have to be honest with you, I was worried about this one in particular. I didn't yeah. think it was going to win, which frustrated me because Dr. Ross is a complete dickhead. But yeah. I was just like, I just, I thought, have the Democrats got the right yeah. candidate? And God damn it, he got in. He just got in and it was an amazing result. Yes. I think, you know, I'm always rooting for my home state of Georgia to see the the best outcomes there. But I think this was definitely, to your point, uh, one of the other races I was watching. It was certainly rooting for Betterman, not just on election night, but I've been rooting for him since I saw Mesmer Oz get in this race. Right. I was just like this guy. I mean, the gaffes, um, just the, you know, first being a Trump back candidate and election denier, you know, someone who's just uh, just, I mean, just someone you didn't want to see on your on your TV screen. And then you had, you know, um, John Fetterman. I think you really just saw um, his victory as a a win for Team Normal, um, a win for for decency, right? Um, and so, you know, I think not only was, you know, did 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 Oz have a, a really a bad start? Um, in fact, being a Trump back candidate. Um, at a time when Trump was really, you know, so, so problematic for the party. Um, but you just saw him not even campaign well, not even campaign strongly, mock someone who had an illness. As a TV doctor, you're, met, you're, met, you're mocking someone who has an illness. I mean, no one like that is fit to serve in any chamber uh, or any, you know, in any elected office. And so, you know, you have being a bad candidate running a bad campaign on top of being a candidate that's backed by, you know, the former president. And that's just a recipe for disaster. So I'm very glad that the the folks of, of Pennsylvania um, saw right through that and were able to make the right choice. Uh, moving up to uh, New England, to uh, New Hampshire. Um, in the end, it was a reasonably comfortable result for Maggie Hassan, but uh, I think she got 53% of the vote over uh, Donald uh, Baldock. But um, I remember watching Ted Cruz on uh, Fox news one night predicting that that would be an easy result for the GOP but in the end um, it was a good win for for for, uh, for the Democrats and for Maggie yeah you know she um, New Hampshire Democrats are are, are such a, a fascinating um, group of Democrats and that they um, really do um, lock in campaign hard and and elect some phenomenal phenomenal uh, candidates, especially um, Democratic women candidates. And, you know, seeing um, Hassan go for her second term, um, you know, I think what I saw was that, you know, she had had a, a proven record of being a fighter, a proven record as being somebody who could go to Washington and get things done. And I think that, you know, she was able to really um, capitalize on this embrace of normal, this embrace of we're headed in the right direction and we need folks who are going to keep working um, to make sure that um, we achieve better results for the American people. So I really do feel like she was um, 
she was a candidate that was in the right time in the right moment, um, really bringing a common sense campaign that really resonated with New Hampshire voters. So really excited to see um, Senator Hassan going back uh, to the Senate. Uh, another Democrat uh, incumbent that is going to return to Washington is in the great state of Arizona. Mark Kelly held off a challenge from Blake Master to hold his seat, uh, his Senate seat um, in Arizona, and it continues to be a strong state for Democrats. Another great result, strong candidate against, I think Blake Masters is another election denying yes. Trumper, right? Yep. So another win for Team Normal. Another win for Team Normal. You know, um, seeing voters handily reject um, election deniers is, I think, a win not just for the state, um, not for just the people of Arizona, um, but also just a win for democracy. You know, when you see folks who have peddled this false narrative throughout their campaign, um, campaigned on it, who, you know, who peddled this lie and and, and trumped up, you know, a lot of uh, folks to, to believe it, um, you don't deserve to hold any elected office. And so I'm really glad that... Um, not only is Mark Kelly a phenomenal um, public servant campaigner, um, but Blake Masters was just so clearly not the right choice. Um, so my hope is that that silences him once and for all. And then another a neighboring state in Arizona, just moving a little bit more further to the west uh, in uh, Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto won in a close race, like a cliffhanger. Yes. Um, and in fact, I think it was the last race. It was the it was the Senate count that tipped the Democrats into uh, 50, into a majority, yes. uh, the, the Senate in Democratic control. Another great win as well against another crazy candidate that the Republicans put up. Um, I feel like that, and both, I always, in my mind, I just sort of group Nevada and Arizona together in sort of, sort of these two sort of Western states that have a, like a purple state. They're always going to be close contests. There's a lot of shit going on, a lot of local politics going on. So a great win for uh, Catherine as well. Yes. And, you know, that was a, a nail biter, as you mentioned, folks were looking at the results of that race um, throughout the weekend and, and and really glad that she was able to pull that that race off. But it was a close one. I mean, it was uh, closely watched, watched, hotly contested um, and, and a very close margin. I think it was, um, you know, not only, again, a win for, you know, someone who was the right um, choice to send back to the Senate. But, you know, I think it showed that you know, these margins weren't, these weren't landslides, right? These were, these were um, candidates that had to run strong campaigns, had to run strong messaging campaigns to really show voters that there was a clear choice here, right? We couldn't just bank on, oh, you know, he's the, you know, he's the GOP opponent. He's a part of, you know, he's got extremist beliefs. I think we had to really make sure that voters understood that there was a choice here and ask them to make the right choice. And so, um, it was a matter of, um, yes, flawed candidates, um, but also good campaigning. Um, and the one I want to ask you about now is uh, Georgia. Obviously, it's going to go to another runoff. Jeez, one moment there that if uh, the Democrats hadn't jagged either Arizona or Nevada, it would have come. I thought, here we go again. It's going to come down to a runoff in terms of who decides control of the Senate. And they're going to send Janae back down there again, and she's going to work her magic. I know that's what's going to happen. Um, were you thinking the same thing? I was point? indeed. I was indeed. I mean, I almost couldn't believe it. You know, I had friends texting me and being like, can you believe it? And I'm like, no, actually, no, actually I can't. Um, and, and I guess it's, you know, it was always a scenario, um, that we, we, we thought was possible. Right. Because I think all the, the polling did show it kind of neck and neck with that race. And, you know, I think, you know, it's always one possible outcome, but, 
wow, I was I was sitting, you know, on on Tuesday night uh, into Wednesday morning thinking, is this really is this really happening? Might the control of the Senate come back down to Georgia? Um, but really, you know, it was for a moment ground zero in the battle for um, battle for the soul of the Senate. So um, I was excited to see the Democrats clinch uh, the majority, um, but also really excited um, about this runoff election because I think there's some there's some clear markers set on what kind of race this needs to be, what kind of ground operation that um, Democrats need to have in order to pull out this victory. Georgia, I mean, the whole idea of having these runoffs, I mean, it's just stupid. They've got to get rid of this. Like, because it, it, if it's going to be so close, you just, all you need to do is run a third candidate, an independent, and it's just going to force a runoff every single time. Yeah, I mean, we we are free and fair democracy and, you know, we want folks to have access to the ballot. And so that this is, this is, this is a, this is what it yields. I do think, though, you know, now that we're in a runoff and we've got just two candidates, it's just going to be about making a clear choice between the two. You know, the, the message of this campaign is all about making sure that voters know, like, you have a proven fighter in Senator Warnock and you have Herschel Walker, who doesn't have a record of serving anything but himself. So um, it's a clear contrast, but boy, it'd be easy to eat much easier to do the first time around. Oh, absolutely. And it is, you're right. It is, it is a clear contrast, yet the results between the two candidates are so close, which makes me think, what are you thinking when you're voting for Herschel Walker? They, it's yes. You, you think, wow, it shouldn't even be close and it's close. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've got to go back to, to make that same case to voters um, and not just make the case, but mobilize voters um, to go to the polls in such a short time window um, that, you know, we have four weeks less than we did last time. And so, you know, getting voters to, um, getting voters educated about new early voting dates, um, how they can cast their ballot, when they should cast their ballot is going to be critically important to every single effort on the ground. So, that's going to be the work of the next four weeks of the Warnock campaign um, of the entire Democratic apparatus on the ground in Georgia. And so um, I can't wait to see it all unfold. Um, Florida and Ohio, um, the uh, Republicans managed to hold on to those two uh, Senate seats. I kind of thought that maybe there was a chance that Ohio might come our way. I thought that, um, and forgive me, maybe I forgot the name of the candidate that we're running in Ohio. Tim, Tim um, Ryan. James yeah, James. I thought, actually, I liked his campaign. I liked what he was saying. Yeah. And I kind of thought that he that suited me all up. these texts. <laughs> if you, if, yeah, it I, was kind of a running joke amongst um, uh, a lot of uh, Democratic operatives that we were getting like a lot of text messages from him. I think I probably got the most from Tim Ryan of any candidate. You know, I was very optimistic about, you know, Tim Ryan's chances. He ran a really spirited campaign. I really felt like his campaign um, even more than, than, than some of the other campaigns I've watched really reflected like true Ohio Midwestern values. It was that common sense campaign. You know, he's been such a champion, um, for, you know, for progressive values. And I, I, I think I assumed a, a, a more probable, probably positive outcome and it wasn't the outcome we we'd hoped for. So, um, that was a, a bit of a disappointment I'll say. 
Um, it's for Australian listeners, uh, Tim Ryan's campaign is the closest I think you can get to what a traditional Labor Party campaign is in Australia, where the messaging is really focused around jobs, good paying jobs, yeah. you know, union jobs, but also that mix of sort of more modern progressive social yes. um, policy issues as well, and really earthy and grounded communicator. Does that mean that Florida and Ohio is just just? Do we just write that off now for, for the Democrats in terms of where they're going to allocate resources? Well, I think Democrats have some clear challenges there. You know, those those uh, Ohio and Florida have been trending away from um, from Democratic control over the last few election cycles. You know, um, you know, twenty twelve I believe was the last time that we won in Florida, um, and I think that was probably the the case. Um, with Ohio, though might have been 2008 in Ohio. And so we've got some real challenges there. So I think we need to take a step back and look at what is a long-term, what is a long-term investment in, um, in messaging look like um, and organizing look like for those states. You know, I'll speak to a Florida more specifically because it's a, it's a state in my, in my geographic neck of the woods where, you know, winning in a place like Florida takes a, a very complex multi-tiered strategy. You have a very diverse electorate in Florida. You don't just have white, black, Latino. Um, there are many, um, you know, there are Cuban Americans. There's, you know, there are Puerto Ricans. There, there are lots of different um, ethnic groups. And so I think you've got to be thinking about um, a diverse strategy there, a complex strategy there. And I think you've also got to, you know, be reminded of, you know, energizing African-American voters and, and black turnout as well. And then you look at just the sheer geography of it, right? Just the investment and in organizing takes millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, Republicans, um, you know, have the advantage there. And I just don't think we quite invest the level of resources that we need to as a party. Um, but we do invest some resources. Um, we have to invest more and we have to start earlier because it's just a bigger organizing challenge for us. Let's uh, move to the House uh, races. And obviously, we're not, not going to go through all uh, 345 or however many there are, 445, uh, 35. But um, 218 is what you need to form a majority in the House of Representatives. At this stage, the Democrats um, have got 205. The Republicans are sitting on 217. There are 13, I think, undecided at this moment or haven't been called by all the major networks. The Democrats lost uh, eight seats so it wasn't once again it wasn't a red wave right across all these house races what were before we get to the ones where i want to ask you what the hell happened where were the good stories that jumped out for you in terms of the house that they where the democratic party managed to hold back this this tidal wave of um of uh, enthusiasm for the for the republicans yeah i mean i think you you really did um i think see just across the board um I think you saw candidates in particularly in these um, suburban areas. Um, I think about Lucy McBath in my home state of Georgia, um, where, you know, she was able to defend her seat. And I think you saw great candidates, um, but I also think you saw them messaging accomplishments, messaging progress. Um, helping folks understand that, you know, maybe the the economy hasn't fully, you know, turned around. We've still got work to do. Um, maybe, you know, inflation is still a challenge. Um, but there are certain freedoms, um, rights that we still need to defend. And 
the Republican Party has not shown themselves to be the party of the last two years that want to defend and advance freedoms. And so I think that you saw a really strong contrasting message. So no matter where you were running, whether you were running in the suburbs or whether you were running in more rural areas or you were running in, you know, um, a very diverse um, area like the one, um, like Lucy McBath's district, for example, but you saw Democrats creating a real contrast between um, the the Republican or or more extreme, um, more right wing candidates in a lot of cases, and common sense, fairness, justice, progress, and so the once the contrast was made, I think for voters, a lot of voters chose to move forward instead of getting stuck in extremism and obstructionism, which I think helped us on the whole. A lot of the uh, races that where Democrats managed to uh, hold on or indeed flip are all probably looking at New York, the state of New York, and saying what the hell happened there because the number of seats that they lost uh, in New York to the Republicans in the end, in the end may be the margin of difference between holding and losing the house. Can you, do you have a, I mean, I know it's early days yet. Yeah. Uh, and as a, as a Boston Red Sox, any opportunity to get, to get stuck into New York folks is I'll, I'll take that opportunity. I don't know if you want to jump on this bandwagon and go kicking with me as well, but um, uh, New York, what, what happened there? I mean, I, I mean, I'm reading the New York times every day and obviously it, fingers are being pointed at everyone. They're pointing at the, um, at um, former, former um, governor, uh, there's a whole bunch of different the, the the head of the Senate, oh sorry, the head of the House of Reps up there. A whole bunch of different people are getting sort of fingered for why this was a terrible result. What's your take on it this uh, this early stage? Yes, well, I too have heard um, various takes on on what happened there. You know, I think um, you know some folks point point to the popularity or lack thereof of the governor. Um, I think some folks point to you know some of her popularity in the city that didn't translate into the suburbs. Um, into more rural areas as well, which resulted in some losses. And I think it's, you know, it's fair to look at the overall landscape and say, you know, in a lot of cases, um, Democrats at the, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, national trends um, kind of held true where folks rejected extreme or um, extremist or candidate trumped back candidates, and in places where you had an incumbent governor, I think you had to also look at how is that person performing in terms of their popularity in the state, right? You look at a state like Georgia, for example. You know, we didn't quite follow this national trend, right? Where our crazy candidate for Senate got beat, and our you know, and our governor was defeated, right? Because he was of the opposing party. You saw that ultimately the popularity of um, the sitting, you know, head of head of um, head of the um, the executor of the state did actually play into what the ultimate outcome was. So I don't think there's a, a single formula to say you know it was applied everywhere. In some places, it worked or didn't work. But I think you had to look at what was the statewide landscape. Where did you know the popularity or the favorability toward government at the top of um, the statewide ticket fair, and then how did that affect a lot of the seats, um, you know, locally or the congressional seats in that state? And so I think that's probably more of the story of New York is, you know, how did statewide elected popularity potentially fare when it came to um, the congressional seats that were in the state as well? 
Let's talk about the uh, gubernatorial races. Uh, there was a number of them that were being run across the country. In the end, uh, the Democrats increased uh, their number of uh, govern- governor houses that they sit in now to 24. The Republicans got 25. The wins, the big ones, was in Massachusetts, Maryland, and Arizona, which is a great win, which only got announced yesterday. Katie Hobbs defeating Carrie Lake. Um, your take on some of those governor races where the Democrats did well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we obviously have pointed to some national trends and the reasons why Democrats did well across the board. Um, I think that, you know, in cases where you have like a Katie Hobbs, you know, running against again another you know, election denier um, didn't help her much, who, you know, argued that if the results of the election favored her, then, you know, she would accept them. If they didn't, she wouldn't, which is, you know, you know, kind of crazy and almost a little bit laughable. Um, but I think you saw, you know, Katie Hobbs run a very spirited campaign, but also folks, again, reject um, the extremism and the 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 uh, election uh, denier narrative. And I think with that went, you know, Carrie Lake. And so um, you saw a close margin because it's it's a hard it's a hard fought state. But I think you ultimately saw, you know, Katie Hobbs prevail because she has a record with folks in the state, you know, having been um, in an elected office, I believe she was the secretary of state. Um, previously, um, you saw her as somebody who folks felt like they could trust. You put, put that alongside kind of this crazy election denier. And I think the choice was clear. So I think that was another stark contrast, um, uh, study and stark contrast of, of two different candidates. I think you were also talking, uh, speaking to, to um, I think you were speaking specifically to states where Democrats did well. So I think that's what I would say um, about that. Um, and I wasn't sure if you were going to transition to, you know, states where we did Georgia. do so well. Um, yeah, I really want to get your thoughts on Georgia. Yeah, talk about Georgia. I mean, you know, Stacey Abrams will forever be a legend, ran an extremely spirited campaign. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of things that you could unpack here. I don't think there's a single set of truths that would determine and, and explain the outcome. Um, I think you had, you know, one, um, Brian Kemp, despite being... Um, someone who signed a voter suppression bill into law, um, SB 202, you know, he was seen, I think, against the backdrop of such a long list of election deniers. I think he was seen as the lesser of those evils. And I think for some people, they saw him buck Trump in 2021 um, with the, um, or in, in 2020 with the um, standing by the results of the election, um, et cetera. And I think he came he came out looking a bit rosy, right? I think he came out looking a bit like somebody who um, was on the side of right. Um, and I think that despite that not being the truth and ultimately him signing a bill into law that same, you know, months later that um, restricted um, Georgian's ability to vote, um, I think some people saw him against, you know, the, the laundry list of crazy um, as a lesser of the evils. And so I think that there was there was a bit of that um, playing into it. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Brian, Brian Kemp being a, an incumbent governor, you know, it's always going to be a slightly tougher race against an incumbent. Last time, remember, it was an, it was an open seat. And so there are those challenges as well. Um, so I think that at least those are probably the two top line things I would point to um, uh, with his, his performance. Have you... St- 
is it too early, Janae, to start to look at uh, county by county returns and comparing them to the vote that uh, Senator Warnock received and the and the vote that uh, uh, Stacey Abrams was receiving? Is there a are we seeing Republicans or independents turn up to the ballot and give a vote for Warnock, but not a vote for Stacey in certain like in in certain key uh, swing counties in you know in in urban parts of uh, Atlanta? Yeah, I think that you know there's still much to unpack um, with the the county level uh, data. Um, you know, I think what we saw broadly is that you know Herschel Walker underperformed um, Brian Kemp pretty significantly, which I think says something about the tastes of uh, Republican voters, you know, um, to, 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 you know, to go to one guy and skip another one um, on the same side of the ballot, I think says something about where voters are. And I think I was always really interested to see what those top lines would be, right? We were looking about who would split the ticket and who would actually um, vote for one and not the other. So to see that Herschel Walker ran behind um, ran behind Brian Kemp, I think is telling, especially going into the runoff. I think it bring calls into question what kind of support um, there will be from the Republican establishment for Herschel Walker in the general election. Um, you know, I think when you look at the Stacey Abrams and and Senator Warnock, the Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock split, you know. We did see that Warnock finished, you know, ahead of Stacey, but I think early early returns were saying about 130 or so thousand votes. And, you know, I think that one speaks to, you know, you have to understand that folks were um, voting affirmatively for Senator Warnock and probably a bit against um, a bit against Herschel Walker in a way that they, you know, in a way that um, voters were um, were were reject or you know, kind of accepting Kemp and rejecting Warnock or rejecting Walker. So I think you kind of have to look at that foil. Um, But, you know, he's a sitting United States senator. Um, He's got name ID. And and I think that, you know, though Stacey does herself have name ID, I think just understanding that, you know, Warnock finishing on top, I think speaks to where um, voters were making as much of a conscious choice for him as they were against um, Herschel Walker. If we then sort of get, lift our eyes and look more broadly across the nation, um, there's a bit of a debate at the moment going on um, if you compare both Senate and House races and compare those districts or those Senate races voted um, on Tuesday to the 2020 presidential, congressional candidates seem to do better than Biden did two years ago. So the question is asked then, did Democrats win in spite of the president or because of him? Because obviously this is a great result for him. And I think if you're you're working in team Biden, you'd be running around the country going, this is historic. Yeah. But at the same time, you start to, I just want to get your sense about, if you look at the numbers, um, was he actually, a, was he a drag on the ticket? Well, I think any time that you have a president that, you know, has a better midterm election than presidents have had for the last, you know, few decades, I think you could, be hard to make an argument that he was a drag, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, despite how great the candidates may be on the ballot, I think people are looking at the reality of the world that we're living in and the challenges that we face. So I think to say that the progress that Biden has been able to make on some key issues um, was not a benefit or a, a help to Democratic candidates 
you know, I don't think that would be an accurate portrayal. I think that the progress he's been able to make um, did help the Democratic ticket. But again, we're here we are in the midterms where voters are still going to take some issue to, well, my, you know, my way of life is not um, not the best it can be, um, but I certainly can see progress being made. Um, I think that resonated in voters' minds. They looked at the alternative and saw Trump and his Trump campaign and his, you know, and his endorsed candidates and said, we're going to wholly reject that. Um, I think that was really um, the choice that voters were making. And so um, I'd say that there were certainly ways in which the progress that the Biden administration has made benefited um, benefited candidates um, up and down the ballot, um, but certainly ways in which voters said, I'm not, you know, we're not where we should be yet, but we need to keep moving forward. And I think that's where he um, he was a support as well. We spoke about the issue, uh, the the Dodd decision on um, uh, women's health by the Supreme Court earlier in the year. And in our, in our podcast before the midterms, we, we, we hypothesized, would this still be an issue or a motivating issue for Democratic voters and independents to turn out? Because it happened so long ago, obviously, at the time when it all came out, it really energized fo- folks. Um, what do you what what do you take from uh, the results on Tuesday? Did, did you know? Do we see women really turn out to vote for for Democratic candidates? Was it something that was very much in the in the forefront of their minds? Did it drive them to the polls and want to try and um, use their use their vote to send a message to Washington that we, we don't we don't support this radical anti women agenda? I think so, and I think that you know, if there was one thing that that pollsters are said to have missed, it was how much of a motivating uh, factor this would be for folks. Um, you know, I think people not only saw the attack on women's reproductive rights, but they also saw um, the attack on freedoms. I think, frankly, and, and you know, and and first it's reproductive rights, but there are certain certainly other freedoms that um, previous court cases have protected LGBTQ rights. Um, the rights to interracial marriage, you know, if, if the courts could do this for this one ruling, you know, what's next? And so I think that there was a response to the institution that said, you know, it is not right to take away rights, which um, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, has voted to instate or to affirm. And so I think you saw folks really rejecting this notion that those rights be stripped away. Um, and the politics that were behind those rights being stripped away. So um, women voting in, you know, in high numbers, which we know, you know, women do vote in high numbers, especially women of color. I think you saw this as an extra motivator in this election um, to really juice that turnout. There was anecdotal evidence, certainly on polling day, of um, shots of young people on campuses right across the country queuing for hours to, to I assume they were to, queuing to vote. They weren't going to some sort of Harry Styles concert. Um, did we see, uh, did, did finally the young people turn out to vote in a midterm election and vote for um, progressive politics? I mean, I, I'm very proud of the way that young people showed up in this election cycle. Um, you know, so many of the so many of the challenges um, that our country faces, so many of the challenges that we're trying to solve, will directly impact that age group long 
beyond um, the time in which the folks making the laws are even around, right? We're talking about climate change. We're talking about reproductive rights. We're talking about, you know, the future of court cases that will decide um, the future of our country. And so um, it was wonderful to see young people not just turning out, but turning out in support of the progress that our country has made. Um, and I feel like that we needed to also send a message because I think that, you know, young people are often uh, counted as um, a voting block that has never um, participated at the level that it needs to, or, you know, the youth vote. There's you know much to do about whether the youth vote turned out. And um, I think that what we showed is that when youth are engaged on key issues that matter to them, um, and the and speak and spoken to and engaged in a way where those progress on those issues speaks to their values, you see them turn out, right? And I think that's a, a message to to politicians, to um, you know, to uh, to Congress that if we want to, and, and to anyone running um, on the ballot in future elections, that if you want to get those votes, you have to earn those votes, and. Um, we have to have an agenda that appeals to young people. Now, the next two years will bear out if 2024 um, is a year where there's, you know, a bit of backlash on on the progress we have or we haven't made, um, if we haven't made progress on some of these issues. But I think 2022 was an indicator that we are moving in the right direction. I wondered about the whole, you know, the election denying stuff and all of the court cases and the hearings in Congress and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I just wonder if that's sort of just Washington, you know, beltway noise and does it translate to uh, people in voter land in the suburbs and, 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 and the regions of the United States and influence how they're going to vote so I just thought oh, that's all. It's all people would like. That's all proceed. That's all politicians are corrupt, or, or, or they're all insane, or they're all you know in it for themselves, and that doesn't impact on my life and what I'm struggling with right now, which might be inflation or or work or or a good education for my kids or something like that. But it seemed to be that uh, over the course of the last two years since January six, that if you sided with the argument that the elections were rigged then it hurt you at the ballot box. Yeah. Is that a fair assumption that we can make? Yes. You know, when we, we pretty much all, all election, election deniers lost, you know, um, we saw that that was a losing campaign strategy this year. And I'm, I'm so glad to see that because I think there's been a lot of question on the impact of January 6th on the American electorate. How are voters really re- viewing that? How was that? impacting how they saw accountability in government, accountability for President Trump, um, accountability for the party and the way that they responded to it. And I think this was that response. Um, I think it was that response that the party um, that um, was at the helm, uh, who president was at the helm of orchestrating um, that mob to storm the Capitol and the unwillingness, frankly, to um, to acknowledge and hold accountable um, those, you know, everyone from the at the top, from Donald Trump all the way down, um, some in his party have refused to call him out. Um, I think Americans responded to that, right? Because if we are to live in a in a free and, and well functioning democracy, there must be above all things accountability, right? Um, and so I think that we saw voters say, "Hey, there's got to be some accountability. This is not right." 
Um, and it remains to be seen how these election deniers and folks who have been beat in this election, where they will go, what they will do, um, how they will evaluate that narrative of election denying. Will it um, will it find its way into you know the the um, the American um, dialogue and discourse about future elections? Um, we don't know yet, um, but I think we need to absolutely keep a vigilant eye on on it as we move into 2024, especially given what might be happening with the uh, the Republican primary on that side. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. It, it, I mean, it must have been reassuring, certainly on election night, as the results were coming in, it was reaffirming that Americans aren't insane. Yeah. Oh. Like, I, I, democracy was on the ballot. Democracy, and it somehow survived. The, democracy was, in fact, on the ballot. You know, um, one of my key takeaways was not just Democrats running great candidates and some of these key races, um, you know, they're not being this red wave, but that democracy won, right? Americans were able to have their voice heard and send a message loud and clear. And that's what that's what democracy is all about. That's what elections are all about, um, about Americans having that choice um, and knowing that our process, our process, the process of democracy of electing our officials should it works and it it only works when everyone agrees to the rules <laughs> and yeah. i think that you know where we saw the concessions for example where you know um we saw some refusals to concede for sure but we saw some concessions there and i think that that was key because that's how that's how it's that's how this works right that's how elections work and i remember i think it was one candidate i think it was tim ryan who said in his acceptance speech like i have the I have the the honor to concede, you know, and it was it was an odd thing to say when you're losing an election, but you know, he pointed out that's how this works. <laughs> you don't get to say you don't like the the results of the election when you don't win. That's not how this works. And so um, that was an important statement, and I saw that narrative playing out in a number of different races as well. And I, you can imagine that would uh, Tim Tim Ryan. I'm assuming is not only speaking to the moment, but speaking to the future as well, yes. because that will do well for him in terms yes. of his own career yeah. um, in the eyes of, um, of uh, fellow Buckeyes. Donald Trump, you and I had sort of talked about this before the, podca- the, the previous podcast, uh, and I sort of hypothesized to you that Donald Trump is a drain on the Republican ticket. I said that he, apart from winning 2016, he lost 2018 midterms, he lost 2020 presidential, he lost the 2021 Georgia runoff. And now his candidates across the country have been resoundingly rejected by voters again. I think he should be at the top. I think he should win the Republican nomination for the presidency because in 2024, he's going to get his ass handed to him because I think most Americans now just think he is insane and they're not going to vote for him. Discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think that that a lot of uh, Americans are quite disgusted with, um, you know, and they're frankly sick of it. They're disgusted and they're sick of it. Um, they are, I think what we saw in the election results was people responding to the havoc that this is all wreaked on, 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 on our democracy, um, you know, having to spend, you know, a year plus, you know, having folks go around the country denying the results of the election, um, the criminality of January 6th. All of these things are things we've had to contend with against the backdrop of all of the other work um, that you know, that we all need to be doing, our elected officials need to be doing to move our country forward. Um, I'm sure it's been a persistent thorn, um, but accountability needs to be sought, um, you know, especially for the the ways in which criminal acts were carried out. 
Um, and I think that the Republican Party, I hope, is ready to, to reckon with that, um, that fact of what a drain that Donald Trump is on the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Um, but for the Democrats, he is a bit of a gift right now. Um, and that, you know, every time he opens his mouth or endorses a candidate, you know, here they go. Um, and this was a test of, of, of his effectiveness in this moment. And so um, I think a message was sent loud and clear. Um, we'll see what is announced tonight. Um, we'll see. Um, but uh, we'll, uh, you know, I, I think despite... Um, the challenges he creates, the drain that he's been really on his party in the midterms, you know, I think we're all foolish to assume he's just going to go away. Um, he's a very prideful man who's never allowed, um, you know, in, he's never allowed his imposition on his party to stop him from doing what it is he wants to do when he wants to do it. So um, they've created a bit of a monster there. So good luck. <laughs> this is an audio only medium, but if you could see Janae's face as she said that, it would be priceless. I would. Uh, it's unfortunate we don't do this on YouTube. Um, Adam, like Adam Kin Kinzinger, is that how you pronounce his surname? The guy that was the, one of the few Republicans yeah. that stood up against Trump. He gets primaried during primary season by a Trump election denier. So that candidate then runs and stands for the Republican Party in that um, Illinois district, congressional district, and then loses to a Democrat. Like if you're a mo what, whatever moderate Republicans are left in that organization, you must be standing up in caucus going, guys, this has got to stop. We're now losing seats. Yep. Like sure, we, we might have just won the House by a slim margin, yep. but, yep. you know. Yep. And they've really got to contend with this. I mean, like if I'm a, if I was a Republican strategist, I'd really be looking at evaluating the Trump, the Trump effect, how it impacted 2024 or 2022 and what we do going into 2024. And I don't think there are really any easy solutions there, right? They've got to figure out with this slim uh, majority in the house, how to, how to get, how to get things moving, how to negotiate within all of these factions of the Republican Party, these, you know, freedom caucuses and such. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy's going to have a nightmare on his hands pretty much every day of his life. It's probably um, going to be one of the, the longest two years of his life, certainly. Um, that's, but, a, that's a penance. That's a penance for his sins. Yes, indeed it is. And, you know, he's going to have to contend with that. Um, but, you know, if you're a Republican strategist, you're evaluating, like, how do we create some sort of buffer, right, between, you know, the, the Trump effect, assuming that Trump is going to Trump for the next two years, um, so that they're not bleeding seats next year um, or in 2024. I mean, it's going to be a real challenge, you know, and I think that, you know, the primary election potentially may help to solve some of that problem for them on the Republican presidential um, primary, but it may not solve all of their problems because we don't know the outcome. Right. So they've got to have some some different plans um, uh, going into this next year and a half or two. So um, we absolutely shall see. I, I, I cannot wait to see how it plays out, frankly. The um, the internals within the Rep Republican Party will be interesting to even see play out in the next couple of days, because I obviously get a sense that there's obviously uh, reading reports uh, around Mitch McConnell's um, grip on the minority leadership within the Senate for the Republican Party is under threat 
from uh, Senator from uh, Florida, and I've, I've got a cold at the moment, so I've got brain frog or fog and forgot his freaking name. Um, uh, what is his name? Uh, Tim Scott? No, who's the Senator from Florida? Republican. Not Cruz. The, Rubio? Texas, the other one. No, not, not Rubio, the other one. They haven't got two. Oh, Rick Scott. And Rick Scott. Oh, Rick, Scott. Rick Scott. Sorry, thank you. Brilliant. Um, like Rick Scott's apparently trying to get muster up numbers to challenge McConnell. Um, McCarthy, uh, does he, I mean, does he get the majority leadership when they go to vote on it? Like, I don't know the makeup of the numbers in the Republican party, but this is going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah. It's going to be very fascinating to watch. I mean, my assumption is that he, you know, I know we're not in the business of making predictions here, but my assumption is that, you know, he, he whips enough votes for, for his, uh, for his, his, um, you know, to win, um, to win his race for, for, uh, for speaker. Um, I don't know that there's a, a an alternative there. Like there's a real number two that that folks are tracking. I think he his his um his entire plan is going to center on how does he keep the different factions of his party happy and and get anything done, get anything moving. Um, you know, I, I think that's that's going to be probably one of the most fascinating things to play out. Um, is how that how that race um how the the speaker conversation happens. Um. I'd say um, for McConnell, you know, he he's been there for a while, and I think has has stood the test of time. I don't I don't assume he's 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 going anywhere, um, at least in the immediate term. I would guess that would be my my best assumption. I think he's um, he's someone who's proven that he can kind of weather um, weather a, a lot of different leadership scenarios um, and leadership roles, and and still figure out how to um how to build consensus and how to get things done so i don't see i i don't envision a change there mitch mcconnell is that political uh turd that won't flush and I mean, uh you know <laughs> other people call him a survivor i call him a turd that won't flush because he's been around forever let's talk about key takeaways for the democrats looking towards 2024 what are some of the key takeaways do you think the democrats need to adhere to in order to prepare for 2024 well I would call it three things in terms of um, preparation for 2024. I think, you know, the first one is, is absolutely going to be, um, you know, investing in organizing, um, starting early. Um, if we are competing in states like Florida, if we're going to compete in states like Ohio, we've got to start laying the groundwork early. Um, these are going to be states that were tough in the last presidential election. And if we're going up against Trump again, um, if we don't have a robust strategy and the resources to match it, um, to build an on the ground, um, organizing infrastructure, then we're going to have some real challenges next year, um, or in 2024. Um, I think that's, that's gotta be a key focus of how are we investing the resources early to make that happen, whether it's organizing, organizer training, um, and hiring, whether it's putting organizers on the ground um, earlier than we might have, we have to have a strategy there. I think the second thing I would uh, point to is really just holding um, these election deniers accountable. Um, anyone who you know has managed to survive um, this cycle where we seemingly flush most of them out, um, they're they're still uh, they're still sitting members of Congress who didn't have. Um, who didn't have um, tough primaries and are still you know, serving, um, serving in Congress who, um, 
who we're going to have to watch out for, especially if Trump and, and the impact of him potentially running again um, draws folks out to the fringes, right? If it draws them back into this narrative because he's this magnetic force for voters. Um, and it's going to be hard for elected officials, candidates, not to get sucked back up into that uh, into that narrative. And it's going to be a really dangerous one. So I think we've got to really keep um, maintain our vigilance there because, you know, before you know it, it's kind of like that, um, what is it, an ivy, a bamboo, it kind of like wraps itself around democracy. And before you know it, it's like choking it out, right? And so I think we can't take our, our eye off the ball there. And then if there was, I guess, a third thing, um, I think it's going to be messaging our accomplishments, um, not only over the last two years, over the next two years. Um, I think it's no secret that Democrats do at times struggle to really bring our message to voters and help them understand what we've done, where we've made progress, where we can make progress with additional four years in the White House. Um, that's going to be key because common sense solutions, delivering on campaign promises, that is going to be the one of the many tools in our toolbox to fight back the crazy um, amidst bad candidates, potential election deniers next go round, a potential Trump candidacy. Um, we're going to be firing on all cylinders, right? And we need a really good message in order to do that. And so I think that's going to be um, probably the third thing that I would say the Democrats need to fine tune um, and get ready for battle next year and in 2024. Well, it's going to be a fascinating next two years uh, in the lead up to the uh, next general election in the United States. Janae, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show again um, and getting your insights, your fountain of wisdom um, and helping us unpack what has been, in the end, a surprisingly hopeful round of elections in the United States. It has indeed. Um, I'm, I'm much more pleased with this outcome than any of the other alternatives. Um, and I'll say in summary, it's really good to be right. Hey there, thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.